From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I'm going to go straight into this. Um, there will be um, a little hiatus now and then in the pictures where I've got more to say than I have to show, in which case you can distract yourself because I'll leave the uh, previous pictures up until the next one comes and that'll distract you from my rambling. Right, Harold Pixton was born in West Disbury, Manchester on the 14th of December 1885. He was the younger, youngest of four boys. His father was a prominent stockbroker, so they lived in some comfort in a large house with two maids, a cook and a gardener. By the time he left Manchester Grammar School in 1901, Howard, he never used his given first name of uh, Cecil, though he did use the initial, he was one of the city's early owners of a motorised vehicle, a two and three quarter horsepower aerial tricycle. When his father became bankrupt, the family moved into lodgings in Alexandra Park. Howard was apprenticed for three years to the Industrial Engineering Company at Newton Hyde. He had an abiding interest in motor vehicles and especially in the early flying machine experiments by the likes of Professor Langley and the Wrights in the USA and others. In 1905, after completing his apprenticeship, he joined the Simplex Engineering Company at Trafford Park as a machine tool draftsman. The following year, he read of the tentative flights made in France by Brazilian Santos Dumont and subsequently the experiments of those such as Voisin, Farman and Blériot in France, and in England, A.V. Rowe, J.W. Dunn, and the American S.F. Cowdery, which, who most people know as Cody, who made the first powered, sustained and controlled flight in the UK on 16th of October 1908. From 1902 to 1908, Pixton was also a day and evening student at the School of Engineering in Manchester, passing in the higher stages of machine drawing, applied mechanics and practical mathematics. After three years with Simplex, having become assistant to the chief draftsman, he chose the practical side of engineering and became a mechanic with the British Engineering Company of Leek, which manufactured steam and gas engines, dynamos and motors. Pixton's enthusiasm for aviation was heightened in 1909 when Britain's first weekly aviation magazines appeared. The Great Flying Week took place at Rennes in France and Latham and Blériot contended to be the first to fly across the Channel. In September of that year, he went to work at the only garage in Leek where he was able to drive higher passengers in the owner's two Durack cars. This brought an opportunity to drive some clients to Germany in a Coventry Humber and to visit the aeronautical exhibition in Frankfurt en route. Here he saw his first aeroplane of Wazan, not the best example, and then he saw a Zeppelin airship over Dusseldorf. Meanwhile, in the UK, Paulin had flown at Brooklands, more Brabazon had claimed the £1,000 prize for the first circular mile flight by a Briton in an all-British aeroplane, 
and Britain's first flying meeting had taken place at Doncaster, or meetings at Doncaster and Blackpool. Now 24, Pixton was determined to fly, but couldn't afford lessons. The deciding event was the epic competition between Louis Paulin and Claude Graham White early in 1910 to win the Daily Mail £10,000 prize for a flight between London and Manchester. On his first attempt, Graham White made a forced landing near Litchfield and Pixton went to see his farm and biplane. Paulin was the eventual winner and the excitement generated fired Pixton to write to all and sundry involved in flying in the UK in a desperate attempt to get into the air. Finally, on 31st of May 1910, he wrote to Humphrey Verdon Rowe at A.V. Rowe & Co.'s Manchester factory saying that he was prepared to take absolutely any risk if they would employ him. Humphrey offered him the chance to learn to fly in return for working as a mechanic for his brother, Elliot, at Brooklands in Surrey, which was fast becoming a hive of aviation activity. He sent off the £30 deposit to cover any damage he might cause during his flying lessons, sold his motorbike, and in June 1910 arrived at the famous motor racing track, only to find that Humphrey had not informed Elliot about his new employee. Nevertheless, oh, I'm jumped ahead. Oh, that's it. Nevertheless, AV took him on, and on the same day, he helped to wheel out the 35 horsepower green engined Row 3 triplane and watched its creator flying it. Pixton soon became acquainted with the other experimenters at Brooklands and their assorted creations, ranging from the sublime to the ridiculous. That's somewhere in the middle. Rowe passed the test for his aviator certificate on the 20th of July and it was awarded to him on the 26th. At the end of the month, two triplanes were sent off by goods train to take part in the second Blackpool flying meeting. Tragedy struck when sparks from the engine ignited the tarpaulins covering the truck containing all of the Rowe equipment and it was burnt to ashes. Pixton, in a following train, was distraught when he beheld the charred remains. But he and Rowe immediately went to Manchester, assembled another triplane from spares, and had an engine delivered direct to Blackpool. Although, although Rowe managed only a few rather short flights late in the week, he was awarded a special merit prize of £50. Pixton also made several hops. Pixton then went with Rowe, to the Harvard-Boston Aero Meet in the USA during the first two weeks of September, though he had to travel steerage. He described the site at Squantum Point as a swamp with just a short landing strip infested with mosquitoes where everything bit or stung. There was no accommodation, so he spent the ten days of the meeting, plus several weeks thereafter, sleeping beneath the triplane's wings. Rowe suffered two bad crashes, but made no flights of any great length. When he left for England, Pixton remained behind to assemble one good triplane for the Harvard Aeronautical Society from the wrecks. He was told to sell the spares to pay his return passage. In October... Rowe started taking on pupils and established a flying school, though he had no proper two-seat aircraft. Pupils were briefed and then sent off alone 
first to master taxiing, rolling, and then making short straight hops before attempting proper flights. On the afternoon of the 28th of October, Rowe flew a circuit in the 35-horsepower green engine Row 4 with Pixton as a passenger. That evening, Pixton, who had badgered his employer for tuition, was told to practice rolling to gain the feel of the controls, but on no account to try to fly. Knowing he was about to disobey orders, he ran down to the far end of the ground and then flew back over the notorious sewage farm, fighting with the controls, which were much more sensitive than those of the previous machines. The aero wrote that he tended to overdo the movements, producing a decidedly undulatory line of flight. Attempting to land in front of the sheds, he came down rather sharply and immediately shot up again to a height of some 20 feet. He now had no room to land, so he faced his first turn. Fortunately, he executed a good turn through two right angles and finally landed heavily, but without damage. On Saturday 5th of November, only his third day of real flying, Pixton took out the row four, just rebuilt after another pupil had smashed it, and gave a marvellous display of speed and quick turning while flying at a height of fully 100 feet. Three days later, he made a long flight in excellent style, cutting figures of eight at a height of over 200 feet, then made a spiral descent and buried the row four's nose in the sewage farm. The carburetor caught fire, ignited the fuel tank and wings and caused considerable damage. He was flying the row four again, now with warping instead of ailerons, on the 17th of November. That's the form you see it there. And continued to do so. Describing a flight by Pixton on the 29th, Flight said, He is a very daring and pretty flyer, but the sudden movements he makes must put a severe strain on the bodywork. In particular, one dive and sudden writing appeared to actually bend the body. In mid-December, he was testing a Farman-type biplane built by Avro. Late in the month, he was flying the Avro plane, believed to be the Jap engine Row 3. Now we move into 1911. On, January, on the 11th of January 1911, Pixton tested a Row triplane, believed to be the Row 4, with a 50-horsepower Empress rotary engine, which proved unsuccessful and was replaced by a 35-horsepower Green. Pixton flew several circuits in this machine on 17th of January, and on Thursday, 19th of January 1911, he made the qualifying flights for his aviator certificate on an Avro triplane, flying at an average height of about 200 feet. He was granted certificate number 50, at a Royal Aero Club committee meeting on the 24th of January. Curiously, owing to an administrative error at the Royal Aero Club, his certificate bears the erroneous date of 31st of December 1910, as did those of 13 other aviators who qualified around that time. Recognising Pixton's abilities, Rowe agreed to pay him £2 a week. Pixton later wrote, I got on famously but far exceeded the £30 deposit I'd paid HV Row for damage I did to the machine, as I kept on crashing into the sewage farm inside the motor track on nearly every other flight. <laughs> Early in the year, probably during March, Rowe received a letter from a New Zealander, Captain Arthur Hawkins, 
who was in Winchester with fellow New Zealander Bertram Ogilvie. They had a triplane incorporating an automatic stability device built to their design by Hanley Page and wanted the pilot to test it. Rowe asked Pixton if he would do it. He agreed, and on his arrival in Winchester, Hawkins showed him the machine. The ailerons on each side were connected by a bar on a pivot placed above the pilot's head. You can see the bar there. Um, and worked like a seesaw. Hawkins explained that when a gust hit one wing, it would lift up the aileron on, on that side, and on doing so, the bar would push the other aileron down, thereby keeping the machine on an even keel. Pixton was doubtful and thought he ought to have some control over it. Early next morning, he started the 50-horsepower Alveston engine, taxied to the far end of the field, opened up and rose. Then the fun started. Instead of keeping the machine on an even keel, the ailerons banged up and down at great speed, rocking the machine so violently that Pixton's teeth rattled. As soon as he could gather his wits, he closed the throttle and set the machine down. Having pulled himself together, he bade Hawkins a cordial farewell and made haste for the railway station. <laughs> On 1st of April 1911, Pixton made the first flight of the new row biplane with a 35 horsepower green, later to become known as the Type D. It was an outstanding success and Pixton told Humphrey Verdon Rowe that compared with previous machines, it was undoubtedly the better all-round machine. During a combined motor racing and flying meeting at Brooklands on Easter Monday, 10th of April 1911, Pixton was the only one to venture aloft in strong and treacherous winds in the afternoon. He made a magnificent flight of 55 minutes on the new biplane, had a short rest, and then flew for another 35 minutes. The aero reported, the aeroplane pitched about like a small boat in a choppy sea, but Pixton seemed rather to enjoy it and had, a per and had perfect control over his machine the whole time. He won the £30 prize for aggregate flight. On the 6th of May, the first handicapped cross-country race was flown from Brooklands to Brighton for a prize of £80. Pixton, on the Type D, was one of four competitors but departed late, as he was also making a flight for the Manville Prize that day. They all arrived at Shoreham, but Pixton became lost and landed at Plumpton Racecourse to ask the way and refuel. The winner was Gustav Hamel. On his way back from the event, Pixton spent the 7th and 8th of May giving a flying demonstration at Oakwood, Haywood's Heath, along with Gordon England and Oscar Morrison. Many spectators were drawn to the site, much to the distraction and distress of the Mother Superior and Sisters of the Holy Cross, from whose land the flights were made. In mid-May, a demonstration was organised at Hendon by Graham White in conjunction with the Parliamentary Aerial Defence Committee to show the military possibilities of the aeroplane. Pixton made an impressive showing in the demonstration of starting, but was not asked to fly again until the evening where most of the notabilities had left. The flying school was prospering, but at the end of May, Pixton reluctantly decided to leave A.V. Row as there was no prospect of a pay rise. 
After applying unsuccessfully to Vickers, he was offered a job as flying instructor at the British and Colonial Aeroplane Company's Flying School at Brooklands. That's Bristol, of course. Bristol Company. Uh, at a handsome salary of £250, with a £50 per annum annual increase. He made his first flight on a gnome engine box kite on the 4th of June. On Saturday, 17th of June... 1911, in the presence of hundreds of overseas visitors in England for King George V's coronation, Pixton made two good flights on a Bristol box kite in a high wind that kept most aviators on the ground. He won the £50 Brooklyn's Aggregate Time Flight Competition. During 22nd July 5th of August, the first Daily Mail Circuit of Great Britain race took place. Pixton was one of the Bristol entrants flying a Type T pusher biplane, but unfortunately crashed at Spofforth on the 24th and had to retire. Frenchman Lieutenant Cono, flying as André Beaumont, won the £10,000 prize, having flown the 1,010-mile course on his Blériot in four days, flying time 22 hours, 29 minutes, 6 seconds. Average speed, 45 miles an hour. In two years, Daily Mail prizes worth £21,000 have been claimed by the French. Channel Crossing, £1,000. London to Manchester, £10,000. And now, Round Britain, £10,000. Pixton's pupils at, Br at Bristol's included Captain Brooke Popham, who joined the school in June and was awarded licence number 108 in July and Brigadier General David Henderson, aged about 50 and soon to become one of the great leaders of the Royal Flying Corps and RAF. He lived in Byfleet, not far from the track, and during his tuition, Pixton took his son for several flights. Henderson was a born pilot with beautiful hands. He joined the school on 9th of August under the pseudonym Henry Davidson and passed his test on the 16th, becoming the first British general to hold a flying licence. On August the 16th, Pixton took up Gordon England's Round Britain aeroplane, which was similar to that one, which had refused to start for the race, but it was a little deficient in horsepower. On a turn, it dropped like lead, and he found he was heading into the sewage farm. Flight reported. Pixton thought he would just clear the farm. The engine thought otherwise, however, and dropped him on some luckily dry ground. In its issue for 9th of September, Flight reported that Mr. Pixon, the shining light of Brooklands, has gone to the Salisbury School of the Bristol Company. He had been transferred to instruct at the Lark Hill flying ground on Salisbury Plain, 60 miles away. The change meant parting from friends, but he worked closely with the recently appointed school instructor, Australian Harry Busteed. Pixton knew most of the Bristol staff before coming to Lark Hill, including designer Pierre Prier, who had joined Bristol's just a few weeks before Pixton and started work on monoplanes. Although Lark Hill lacked the crowds Pixton had been accustomed to at Brooklands, the area was exceptional for flying and he actually enjoyed the peace and quiet. He believed it to be the finest possible training ground for cross-country pilots. In October 1911, Pixton made three overwater flights in very gusty weather from Hailing Island in box kite number 29, 
with flotation bags fitted beneath the lower wings. His passenger, Lieutenant Charles Deniston Burney, Royal Navy, the son of Admiral Sir Cecil Burney, was very interested in the operation of naval aircraft with the fleet, and we shall see the curious outcome later. The year had been a good one for Pixton. His flights in high winds had paid off not only during the Brooklyn's race days, but for the Manville contest, and his transfer to Lark Hill had not prevented him from competing for the prizes to be won at Brooklyn's. He was often there, doing the necessary duration flying and returning to the plane, having won money. The £500 Manville prize was to be awarded to the British aviator who, with a passenger, remained the longest aggregate time in the air on an all-British machine. The flights had to be made on nine specified days, starting at Easter and continuing into October. The combined weights of pilot and passenger was was to be not less than 20 stone, and the pilot had to remain in a continuous flight for at least 15 minutes on at least half the days on which he made a recorded flight. Have you got that? It eventually came down to a contest between Cody and Pixton, and on 7th of August, a Manville day, Cody nearly caught up with Pixton, who had spent much of the day trying to sort out his box kite's troublesome ENV engine. He had gone up three or four times with his passenger, but could only manage flights of less than 15 minutes. As he was wasting time, he abandoned the Manville flight for that day and went for the Brooklyn's prize instead, flying solo. He took the first prize easily. Cody came to Brooklyn's on this day and did three flights totaling 80 minutes, raising his Manville flying time to 150 minutes against Pixton's 187 minutes. On one Manville day now remained, 4th of October, the last motor racing meeting of the season. Brigginshaw, a Bristol mechanic who had been Pixton's constant passenger, was not available, so Lieutenant Hartford, sorry, Harford RA flew with him. They went up twice and were tossed about considerably and it was cold and wet. After flying with Harford, Pixton took up Captain Ritchie of the Indian Army, who had just gained his licence at the Brooklyn's Bristol School. Pixton added two hours, nine minutes to his total time for the Manville. Then, before the day was out, he also added 108 minutes to his Brooklyn's flying time. At 5.30pm, the Manville competition closed. At Laffin's Plain, Cody added only 40 minutes to his time. He had no idea of the time Pixton had put in until after the close of the contest when he discovered his competitor was the easy winner. On that day, Pixton won the £500 Manville Prize, the Brooklyn's Racing Season Aggregate Prize of £150 and the Brooklyn's Duration Prize of £30. He had taken a major portion of the prizes offered by the Brooklyn's Automobile Club. Seven meetings had been held at Brooklyn's during 1911. The total prize money, £803, 10 shillings and 5 pence, included a percentage of the gate receipts for the participants and prizes for the best three aggregate flights during the season of £150, £100 and £50 respectively. Pixton had the best aggregate time, 
his total time in the air of 7 hours, 33 minutes, 43 seconds, securing him the £150 first prize. And with race day prizes totalling £269, 7 shillings and 11 pence, his total winnings were £419, 7 shillings and 11 pence. Including the Manville prize, his total prize money was £919, 7 shillings and 11 pence. He had earned more money than anyone else flying in Britain during 1911. For 1912, the Bristol Company set its sights on overseas sales. The Bristol Prea monoplane had created great enthusiasm during its trials at Lark Hill. Pixton had thrown the Preas on several occasions, and Farnell Thurston, the Bristol representative, told him that in a bid to secure orders from European countries and persuade their governments to build Bristol's under licence, Pixton was to demonstrate the type. He was to go to Spain, but first he went to Paris to relieve James Valentine, who was flying around the city to promote the Bristol Prea during the third International Paris Air Show. Pilots Bustide and Pixton then travelled with Thurston to Cuatros Vientos Airfield near Madrid in Spain to demonstrate the box kite and the Prea. The airfield was 3,000 feet or so above sea level and its name meant four winds. The two pilots flew before King Alfonso XIII of Spain, Bustide in the box kite and Pixton in the Prea. After several days of demonstrations, taking up officers and members of the government, they prepared to depart, leaving the two machines with the military authorities. It was decided, however, that Bustide should stay on to take control of the Spanish School of Military Aviation. The trip proved successful, several prayers and box kites being ordered. From Spain, they continued to Germany. Valentine's machine had been sent to the Derberitz military ground near Berlin, where Pixton was to fly in front of the German authorities. It was now March, and when they arrived at the ground, the wind was strong. But His Excellency General Baron von Linke of the German Aviation Corps and his officials were awaiting the first demonstration. They were convinced the aircraft would not be able to fly in such conditions, and Pixton took this as a challenge. Getting into the prayer, he ran a few hundred yards, rose and suddenly shot up. After handing the machine with difficulty for a considerable time, he came into land, misjudged his height and bounced badly. He immediately went up again, knowing that if he returned a little later, the impression created by the awful landing would have softened. <laughs> his second landing was much better, and to his surprise, the German officials looked very pleased. Frank Coles, Pixton's mechanic, had explained that the heavy landing was a demonstration to show the strength of the undercarriage. <laughs> In the following days, Pixton took up several officers and made cross-country flights with some. Then they tried out the aircraft for themselves and liked it. 34 Priors were eventually built, single-seaters and two-seaters, with side-by-side -side and tandem seating but Prea decided to leave Bristol's and return to France. The company then took on Henri Coanda, the son of Romanian War Minister General Coanda. Though barely 26, he was very highly thought of. Pixton was next assigned to test a waterborne monoplane, the X-2, that had been built at Filton in the utmost secrecy with Admiralty support. 
Based on a concept of Charles Deniston Burney's, it had a boat-shaped fuselage to ride the water, and underneath were three legs fitted with a series of hydrovanes, two in front with water propellers and one at the rear. In theory, one started the engine, let in a clutch which drove the water propellers, and then, when the fuselage lifted off the water on its hydrovanes, one would start the air propeller and take off in the normal way. It was ingenious, but Pixton had little faith in it and saw a distinct possibility of getting wet. <laughs> on the first day of the trials at Dale in Milford Haven in May 1912, the X-2 was put into deep water, but the fuselage leaked and various structural and mechanical problems were encountered. When it was towed by a naval torpedo boat with Pixton in the cockpit, it proved unstable at moderate speeds, and even after modification, it was impossible to prevent the X-2 heeling over when the water screws were engaged. Pixton was soaked. After three weeks of trials, the aircraft had hardly managed to lift out of the water. Following further modifications, the experiments were resumed with another pilot in September 1912, and a second machine underwent trials in August 1913 and June 1914, but the programme was then discontinued with no flights achieved. At Halberstadt in Germany, at the foot of the Hartz Mountains, the Deutsche Bristelwerke, formed on 28th of February 1912, was building box kites and prayer monoplanes under licence. Pixton now went there to form a flying school and to instruct six German officers. They learnt readily, and a few weeks later, Kemp, a colleague from Pixton's row days, arrived to take his place. Between overseas visits, Pixton continued instructing at Lark Hill. One of his pupils was Prince Serge, oh, let's get this right, Cantacuzani of Romania, heading a mission of officer pupils. He had come to England to learn to fly and observe the methods of running a school, and was the first prince to take flying lessons at a British school. The military aeroplane trials at Lark Hill were to start on the 1st of August 1912 and continue to the end of the month. So Bristol's Lark Hill pupils were sent temporarily to the already crowded school at Brooklands. Bristol was anticipating good results with two Coanda monoplanes and two Gordon England biplanes, with Busteed, Valentine, England and Pixton to fly them. During the trials, Sir George White, the company's founder, asked Pixton to visit him in Bristol. The company's machines had not done much so far. Valentine had walked out and Gordon England could not get his machine off the ground and had taken Pixton's. Sir George told Pixton that Valentine disliked Coanda's machine and had refused to fly it and England's biplanes were withdrawn. He asked Pixton to take over Valentine's machine, number 15, and Pixton consented, though the trials were half over. He successfully accomplished the three-hour duration flight in very windy conditions. In the speed tests, Pixton achieved a good average of 73 miles per hour and passed easily, the requirement being 55 miles an hour. Then he flew as slowly as he dared for minimum speed, which had no limit but that of safety. He found the conditions for the gliding tests unsuitable and scored no marks. The Coanda performed well in tests for ease of steering and estimated range, but in the ploughed field tests, Pixton landed all right but failed the takeoff. Rain had reduced the field to a quagmire and the machine could get no traction. He also failed the normal landing tests. 
A stop within 75 yards was required, but he far exceeded that. Landing too near the hangars, he headed straight towards them. Opening up the engine, he aimed for the sun gap between the hangars and got through, then had to pull back sharply to clear a fence. He scraped over and touched down on the other side. The rough weather test required a short flight in a wind averaging 25 miles per hour. On August 23rd, with Captain Hamilton as his passenger, Pixon flew for 15 minutes in wind speeds ranging from 17 to 47 miles per hour, with gusts frequently jerking the warp control out of his hands. Cody was the overall winner of the trials, but Pixton and Busteed shared third place with the British de Purgesan entry and each won their company £500. Largely through the influence of Coanda's father, the Bristol Coanda monoplane was to be demonstrated in Romania. During October, Pixton, Thurston and Coanda set off to display tandem two-seater number 118. In Romania, General Coanda took them to, to, to Cotrasini Aerodrome, where the Romanian government had its flying school. Army manoeuvres were in progress, and they were introduced to the Prince and Chiefs of the Military Forces. While flying with an officer during the manoeuvres, Pixton was coming into land and made one of his usual glides from 1,500 feet with the engine stopped. Comfortably gliding in, he made a perfect landing, finishing with a straight run in to what he thought was a sheet of shallow water. To his surprise, a large quantity of water and mud splashed up and the aircraft somersaulted. It was a pond. He was sitting upside down in the mud with his head underwater, pinned down, unable to move, and with the back of the seat on his neck and unable to breathe. Somehow he freed himself, emerged from the machine and stood up. The trapped officer was freed, none the worse for the mishap, and once the aircraft had been cleaned and dried out, Pixton was flying again. More than a month was spent in Romania, and the Romanian government placed an initial order for ten. However, Coanda's thoughts had now turned to biplanes, and a good number of the monoplanes were later converted into that configuration. On the 19th of November 1912 at St Anne's-on-Sea, Pixton married Maud Hallam. They spent a part of their honeymoon at Brooklands, Hendon and Lark Hill. The rest was to be spent in Italy, where Pixton went in December to fly for Bristol's. The Italian government had ordered 12 British-built Coanda monoplanes and followed this with an order for 36 to be built by Caproni in Italy, the first few of which were to be test-flown by British pilots. The Bristol party went to Mirafiori Aerodrome, not far from Turin, where a Coanda monoplane awaited them. Snow lay on the ground as Pixton set off over the Alps on a test run. Colonel Morris, commander... Colonel Maurice, Commander General of the Italian Military Air Corps, and Major Duhay, Commander of the Aviation Battalion, were highly impressed when, with Captain Dixon as his passenger, he flew at 72 miles per hour and climbed 3,300 feet in 13 minutes, breaking Italian records for speed and rate of climb. After further flights with Dixon, Pixton took several officers up and a few pilots tried the machine. Pilots Pisi and Sippy arrived to supervise assembly of the first two Caproni-built monoplanes at the Milan Works. But in April 1913, the contract with Bristol was cancelled, and then the Bristol Caproni contract was also cancelled. 
In January 1913, Pixton and his wife proceeded to Spain with Thurston, where he was to fly before the king again, this time to show off the Coanda monoplane. At Cuatros Vientos, they met several members of the royal family, and on 22nd of January, Pixton gave Prince Leopold his first flight. Alfonso, himself an experienced pilot, also flew with Pixton. Orders were placed, and a Spanish commission was to visit Lark Hill in the spring. Bristol's was very pleased with the results of the overseas visits, and Coanda's first biplanes were already on the scene. Although a military ban on monoplanes had been lifted, many firms were now committed to biplanes. Pixton now took up the position of school manager. In March 1913, the first of four Romanian Coanda monoplanes arrived at Lark Hill. On the 5th, Pixton took one up for a few minutes, but it was too rough and windy. Anxious to get the test completed, the prince urged him to continue. Pixton declined, saying he would not pass any machine that had been inadequately tested. Young Jeff England asked to do an hour's duration flight. He was already very experienced, so Pixton consented, but told him to watch the weather. He flew for 40 minutes at 600 feet, then, as he came into land, the wing was struck by a violent gust and collapsed. The aircraft fell to the ground from about 60 feet, killing England. Early in October 1913, Pixton returned to Brooklands. The War Office wanted to take over Lark Hill for use as artillery ranges, and Bristol's had left the site by early May 1914. One day in November, Pixton told a mechanic to make minor alterations to the tailplane of a new Coanda biplane, but he was telephoned by a very indignant Coanda, who said that the aircraft should not be altered in the slightest. Pixton said it was tail-heavy, but Coanda replied that Pixton was not in a position to make structural alterations. Stanley White then came on the phone, insisting that Coanda's instructions be obeyed. Pixton again said that if the alteration was not allowed, he would not fly the machine. When White persisted, Pixton said he had no alternative but to leave the company. The dispute was unresolved, and most reluctantly, Pixton left. During 1913, the Sopwith Aviation Company had become established. As Harry Hawker was its only pilot, Pixton asked him whether he could do with another. Hawker was planning to return to Australia for a few months and suggested that Pixton came immediately in a temporary capacity. The Sopwith policy was to enter all competitions and in view of this he was to receive £5 a week basic rate, £5 for each machine he tested and a share of the prize monies. Very good pay. Several naval air stations around the coast were being equipped with aeroplanes built to Admiralty orders and one of Pixton's first tasks was to, deliver a bat, was to deliver a bat boat from Cowes to Cowshop. With him went Victor Marle, a new mechanic who was hoping to learn to fly. At Cowes, they floated the aircraft at the mouth of the River Medina, and after taxiing into the Solent, Pixton took off, completely at ease with the flying boat. At Cowshot, he put it through the Admiralty tests and handed it over. The Sopwith Company's first creation, the three-seat tractor biplane, was in production for the RFC military wing as the two-seat D1. Pixton's next task was to test a batch of them, part of an order of nine. 
The Admiralty also had them. The first was under test early in November, and they emerged from the works quite rapidly. After company tests at Brooklands, Pixton put them through their acceptance tests at Farnborough. On the morning of Monday, 12th of January 1914, Pixton delivered the 8th War Office 80 horsepower sop with D1 to Farnborough in a heavy snowfall. The wind gauge at Brooklands showed between 20 and 30 miles per hour, and higher up the wind was some 40 miles per hour. As the 16 mile flight took eight and a half minutes, his speed worked out at over 110 miles an hour. On Saturday the 17th, he put this aircraft through its tests at Farnborough, and on the next day he was flying the ninth and final aircraft of the order at Brooklands. He delivered it and put it through tests on the 21st. Further testing included six pusher seaplanes, the first of which Pixton flew from the Hamble River in March. Three were initially built for the Greeks and delivered by sea in April, May and July 1914. The Admiralty then ordered two, delivered to Grain in March 1914. Then the Greeks ordered another six, one of which was completed as a tractor seaplane. But all were commandeered by the Admiralty at the outbreak of war. Pixton also tested three Anzani engine Sopwith hydro tractor HT biplanes ordered by the Admiralty and delivered them to various air stations in June and July 1913. Late in October 1913, Hawker had obtained Sopwith's approval to build a special two-seat biplane to a design conceived by himself and Fred Segrist. This was entered in the company's order book in Hawker's name as Type St. B, and a separate contract was made to sell the machine to him for £275 for a, for a tour of Australia. Hawker made the maiden flight on 27th November 1913 before Pixton joined the company and its speed took everyone by surprise. It was only 20 foot long and spanned 25 foot 6 inches and because of its compact design it became known as the tabloid after the Burroughs Welcome trade name for a miniature first aid package. Sopwith received an initial order from the War Office for nine single-seaters type SS three of which were later taken over by the Admiralty. Pixton was to carry out their tests. Meanwhile, the one and only Sopwith sociable side-by-side two-seater dual-control biplane for the Admiralty, also known as the Tweeney, arrived from the works. The first Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, had specified that the cockpit should be roomy and the seats specially upholstered in leather. Pixton found it flew well right away, needing no adjustments, and a few days later, on 19th of February, handed it over to Lieutenant Spencer Gray of the Royal Navy, who piloted it from Brooklands to Hendon in mist and rain. Next day, Churchill went up in Tweeney with Spencer Gray and took the controls. During the second week in April, a single-seat tabloid was at last delivered from Kingston. Pixton found it a sheer delight. It was like handing a racehorse, and he loved the ease of the controls, the extreme stability and the quick recovery from dives, and it was difficult to make it side-slip. Such was its performance that Pixton was heavily handicapped in races. He had been flying it for only a few days when Sopwith entered it for the 50-pound Easter Aeroplane Handicap at Brooklands, a short course of nine miles to Cox's Lock Mills, there and back twice, 
from a standing start and a flying finish. Pixton was scratch and last to leave. Although he raced full out and overhauled the early starters, he did not have sufficient time to pass the two leading machines, the Blerio and Vickers, which were much slower, so he came third. In February, to go back, Sopwith had decided to enter the Jacques Schneider Maritime Aviation Competition, properly La Coupe d'Aviation Maritime Jacques Schneider. At the Gordon Bennett Banquet of the Aero Club de France on 5th December 1912, Schneider, son of the owner of the Schneider Armaments Works at Le Creusot, and a pilot himself, had put up for international competition a 25,000 franc, that's 1,000 pounds, trophy for the promotion of seaplanes to go to the club represented by the winning pilot and also offered 25,000 francs annually for three consecutive years. The rules came under the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale and the country had to win three times in five consecutive contests to hold the trophy outright. And each year, the winning country would have the honour of organising the next competition until the trophy was claimed. The course had to be at least 150 nautical miles over sea and point-to-point or circular, uh, sorry, and point-to-point, circular or angular. The first race, held in 1913 in conjunction with the Monaco Hydro Aeroplane meeting, had been won by the Frenchman Maurice Prevost, the only competitor out of four to finish. British entrants for the 1914 event had to put themselves up for selection by the committee of the Royal Aero Club by the 24th of February that year if they wished to represent the Empire. And Sopwith's entry was the only one submitted. The Royal Aero Club accepted it and sent a formal entry to the Aero Club de France. The competition was to take place at Monaco on Saturday the 18th of April as part of the second annual Hydro Aeroplane meeting. It had been decided to adapt a military tabloid, so the wheels were replaced by a wide, single central float and wingtip stabilising floats, and its 80-horsepower gnome was changed for a new 100-horsepower, nine-cylinder gnome monosupap, that's single valve per cylinder, that Tom Sopwith had brought back from Paris in March. He said he brought it back in his suitcase. (laughs) On the first... well... Depends how big the suitcase was. On 1st of April, the aircraft, designated the HS, was rushed off for trials at the mouth of the Hamble River. Watched by Sopwith, Marl and others, Pixton taxed it out. But as soon, he opened, soon as he opened up the engine, the main float, which was positioned too far aft, dug in and he shot out of the cockpit into the very cold water. Pixton swam ashore, but the machine was out of reach and drifted into midstream. Finally, late in the day, the handling party got a rope to it and pulled it ashore, where it was left for the night. By next morning, the aircraft had tilted onto its nose with its tail in the air. It was quickly dismantled, rushed back to the Kingston Works. The single float was cut in half and fitted to a new frame to provide twin floats for better stability. The wingtip floats were done away with and a tail float and a small fixed fin were added. Trials resumed on the Thames near the Kingston Works on 7th of April. The flotation tests were passable, but as Pixton prepared to take off, Thames Conservancy officials appeared and said flying was not permitted. 
So early next morning, the aircraft was rushed down to Richmond, just below Teddington Lock, and put on the water near Glover's Isle, which came under the Port of London Authority. Once he was satisfied with its control on water, Pixton flew off with the engine misfiring a bit and managed to reach a good speed of 85 miles an hour. But it was barely a three-mile flight. The machine was now dispatched to Monaco. Sopwith did not expect to win. The tabloid arrived on Thursday the 16th, two days before the race, and Marl erected it. Then a mistral blew in from the Sahara and it looked very doubtful whether Pixton would be able to make any test flights. Roland Garros, who had just won the Monaco Aeroplane Rally, was entering the Schneider and was the favourite. Four countries were represented, France, America, Switzerland and Britain. Germany had crashed both machines before the race. The tabloid was the only British entry. The Curtis, the FBA flying boat and the Sopwith were biplanes, but the Newport and Moraine-Sonia monoplanes were considered the favourites. The then rough sea caused the race to be postponed until the 20th. Pixton arose early on Sunday the 19th for a test flight. He took off, rose smartly and tried some sharp bank turns as the course had four angles which had to be taken 28 times, one being most acute. It felt fine and after 10 minutes, not wanting to display it too much, he alighted in the harbour. They then changed the propeller for one of smaller diameter and coarser pitch to prevent the engine over-revving, and as they did not know the fuel consumption of the new engine, a supplementary petrol tank holding about six gallons was lashed in the cockpit and connected to the main tank. They now had 30 gallons, believed sufficient to last the race without the need to refuel. On the morning of Monday 20th of April, Pixton made another test flight. There was a moderate easterly wind and a head lay 28 laps of the 10-kilometre course, about 174 miles. Competitors could start from 8am onwards, but the tabloid engine was getting a final check. Levasseur was away on the dot of 8am and then Espanay, both in Newports, followed almost immediately by Burry in the FBA. The French pilots laboured the obligatory two alightings and takeoffs during the initial circuit and all three looked slow in the air, were making flat turns and flying very high. The tabloid was now ready, so Pixton took off. He was in the air just 15 minutes after Le Vavasseur. The two compulsory alightings did not slow him up, as he touched down and skimmed across the water faster than his rivals. Most pilots flew in close to the pylons and then went wide, but Pixton cut his turns and banked well over. The tabloid was very much faster than the others, and it was reported that no water plane had ever been seen banking like that at, Mon at Monaco, and that Pixton applied full warp and banked from 60 to 70 degrees every time. Each lap was taking him approximately four minutes, which meant he was flying at about 90 miles an hour, and he felt he could maintain this. To count the laps, Sopwith had pushed 28 drawing pins into the instrument panel. At the end of each lap, Pixton pulled one out. Garris, still on the ground, decided not to start, as he could not possibly beat Pixton. During the 15th round, the engine suddenly misfired, and Pixton took the machine higher. 
so that he will be able to turn into wind and glide down if the engine failed. For the next few laps, his speed was irregular, but as the engine gave no further trouble, he came down lower again. Espanet and Levasseur retired in their 17th and 18th laps respectively, leaving only Bury and Pixton in the air. Bury, in a flying boat, was, much, was flying much slower, so Pixton passed him several times. Then Bury lost about 30 minutes for refuelling. Pixton had ample fuel to finish the race. Finally, amid cheers and exultation, he crossed the line for the 28th time. He had won easily, averaging 86.78 miles per hour for the course. Pixon had flown for almost two hours before alight, but before alighting, as arranged with Tom Sopwith, he flew a couple of extra laps to set a new 300-kilometre seaplane world speed record of 86.6 miles per hour. He said the tabloid had behaved, had behaved beautifully in the air and on the water. His top speed had been 93 miles per hour. A broken cam had put a cylinder out of action, so Pixon had been flying on eight cylinders for the last 13 laps. Jacques Schneider welcomed Pixton heartily, saying, Bravo, Monsieur Pixton. Sopwith warmly congratulated him, and Harold Perrin and Harry Delacombe, representing the Royal Aero Club, shook his hand. French designers dashed round the tabloid with tape measures and rulers. <laughs> By winning the Schneider Trophy, the Sopwith Company and Pixton had elevated Britain to a leading position in aviation. Flight stated, It is almost impossible to overrate the importance of the winning of the Schneider Trophy by the Sopwith machine piloted by Mr C.H. Pixton. The French have made no secret of the fact that they consider the British victory as a most serious blow at the prestige of French aviation. The late Jack Bruce wrote, This spectacular success of a British design had an almost seismic effect in European aviation, but it had been achieved with a French engine. Uh, on Saturday 26th of April, Pixton did some fine exhibition flying in a brisk wind before a French commission. He had started testing the 12 tabloids ordered to the war office as they came in from the works, flying them at Brooklands and then taking them over to Farnborough. While delivering the second on 6th of May, he landed slightly downwind and near the aeronautical inspection department shares the tail shot up and the aircraft somersaulted. It went back to the works and was repaired by the 25th of May. Pixton also taught Mull to fly and he passed his tests on 14th of May, gaining certificate 784. During the following week, Mull flew a tabloid with success, made his first flight from water when he put a Sopwith pusher for the Greek Navy through its tests on the Isle of Grain, and then flew the 100-horsepower Schneider machine. He quickly became an excellent pilot. A larger Bat Boat II, powered by a 200-horsepower Salmson radial engine, was to go to Germany and Pixton flew it from Walston, Southampton, where it had been assembled to Calshot on the evening of 18th of May. He flew to Netley, nearly two miles, without touching the controls, as it flew absolutely straight and was remarkably smooth. On the following evening, the 19th, he made three flights at Calshot with heavily banked turns. Soon afterwards, a German officer, Wilhelm Hillmann, came to collect it, and Pixton flew with him, to ensure he was completely satisfied. 
Sopwith's next main event was the 1914 Aerial Derby, an annual race around the outskirts of London organised by the Hendon Management and sponsored by the Daily Mail for the Daily Mail Gold Cup and the Shell Trophy and cash prizes of £175 and £25 plus £200 for the fastest time. The Derby started and finished at Hendon and a circuit of 94.5 miles with turning points at Kempton Park, Epsom, West Thurrock, Epping and Hartford. It was set for Saturday the 23rd of May, but bad weather caused its postponement until the 6th of June. On that day, the weather was just as foggy as before, but the race went ahead. Pixton, flying an 80-horsepower tabloid, had a six-minute advantage over Barnwell on the 100-horsepower ex-Schneider tabloid, now with a light racing undercarriage and easily capable of exceeding 100 miles an hour, who was scratch. It was originally announced that Pixton was to fly the 100-horsepower tabloid, but for some reason Barnwell, who was, flying, who was to fly a 100-horsepower Vickers biplane, took charge of Pixton's 100-horsepower Sopwith at the last minute. Pixton flew the 80-horsepower machine instead. Both of them, however, were heavily handicapped, and although Pixton passed the other competitors, he decided to quit, as it was ridiculous to continue under such conditions. After landing, he found the petrol pipe for the carburettor was just hanging on and was spurting petrol. Barnwell also dropped out. Brock was the winner. The day after the derby, Harry Hawker arrived in Southampton from his six-month holiday in Australia and went straight to Brooklands. He was soon up in the Schneider aeroplane with its 100-horsepower engine. Then he was racing again, first competing in the London-Manchester-London handicap on the 20th of June. The next race Hawker entered was the 27th of June, Brooklands handicap. Marlon Pixton also entered, but the handicapping was so severe that Hawker and Pixton on the tabloid scouts... 180 horsepower, had no chance of winning. Marl came first. Another batboat too, delivered to the Royal Flying Corps Naval Wing, was not accepted, so Sopwith sold it to Greece. Pixton collected it from Cowshot on the evening of 7th of July and flew it back to Southampton to be prepared for its new buyer. Sopwith were preparing for the Daily Mail £5,000 round Britain seaplane race due to start on Monday 10th of August. Pixton was to fly the new Sopwith Batboat, which had a powerful 200-horsepower sunbeam and carried sufficient fuel for a five-hour flight. Hawker was entered too. The 1914 Gordon Bennett International Race was also due to take place in France during September. However, all air races were postponed as 4th of August 1914 brought this unique period in aviation history to an end. Pixton continued testing Sopwith machines for the War Office and Admiralty, but he was not fully occupied. Moreover, since Hawker's return and Mal's qualifying, Sopwith now had three excellent pilots and Pixton had been taken on in a temporary capacity. He therefore left Sopwith at the end of September 1914 to join the Aeronautical Inspection Department, later renamed the Aeronautical Inspection Directorate. Set up in January 1914, the AID was a new civilian testing and inspecting inspection establishment at Farnborough. Manufacturers wanting to supply the military with aircraft submitted details and, if approved, a prototype went to the AID to undergo tests. The AID inspectors kept an eye on production and the final testing was done at Farnborough. 
Pixton was engaged as assistant inspector and test pilot in the flight delivery section, where his duties were to test and report on all air-delivered machines. He sometimes went to the manufacturers to collect machines, and sometimes they were flown in by company pilots. His boss, Colonel Fulton, was a very pleasant man, gentle but determined in his ways. He had been given a free hand to start the AID and was very good at his job. Working directly under him were Coburn, Inspector of Aeroplanes in charge of flight delivery, and Bagnall Wilde, Inspector of Engines. The AID, which had a small staff of about 45, occupied two large hangars beside the Royal Aircraft Factory. It was expected to expand rapidly as work increased. At the AID's suggestion, Pixton became a member of the RFC, the transfer being done by paperwork and at Fulton's personal request. Pixton, now a flying officer, remained attached to the civilian body of the AID. There was only a handful of pilots to test machines, and although both A.V. Rowe and Tom Sopwith asked him to come back as production increased, it was out of the question. By thorough inspection and test, the AID was making flying safe, and Pixton was content. In the London Gazette of 5th of September 1916, it was announced that as of 20th of August, Pixton was promoted Lieutenant Temporary Captain C.H. Pixton, Special Reserve, and was to retain his temporary rank while so employed. Pixton occasionally flew machines to France for the British Expeditionary Force, and in the spring of 1917, he was asked jointly by the War Office and the India Office to fly a Royal Aircraft Factory FE-2B, built under subcontract by Blackburns of Leeds and paid for by the people of Leeds at a presentation ceremony. He went to the Blackburn Works to collect it, then flew to Blackburn's military aerodrome at Roundhay for the ceremony. During 1917, because of increased aircraft production, the AID introduced nationwide aircraft acceptance parks. In December 1917, Pixton went to the acceptance park at Newcastle for six months, where he tested machines from the nearby Armstrong Whitworth works and flew them to Farnborough for dispatch to the front. After six months at Newcastle, he was posted to Dublin for a further six months as an inspector of aerodromes and landing grounds. In October 1918, he was transferred to the AID headquarters at Clements Inn in London, where his allotted task was to visit aircraft factories and report on them. From June 1910 to the end of 1918, Pixton had flown about 80 aeroplane types, accumulating about 8,500 hours. Just a bit on the post-war. Um, on Saturday, 20th of July, 1919, Marine Aviation returned to Lake Windermere for the first time in three years. Pixton had now joined the Avro Transport Company, created to provide joyride flights at holiday centres. And on that day, he flew Avro 504K seaplane, oh, sorry, I missed that one, uh, H2581, later GEADJ, in from Lytham, a 45-mile flight. Next weekend, Pixton departed and returned with a second 504K, H8582, later GEADK. He leased the Cockshot Point hangar from Captain E.W. Wakefield of Kendall and rented a cottage at Hill of Oaks from him as well. Interviewed by the Westmoreland Gazette, he said, We can fly you anywhere. If you want to go to Tlandudno, the Isle of Man or Fleetwood, anywhere which has deep water, we can take you. 
The machines I have here carry two passengers as well as myself as pilot. For two guineas, you get a fine flight of 10 to 15 miles. For four guineas, I will take passengers up to 1,000 feet, from which a height from which height a magnificent view of the lakes and hills can be obtained. The flight is, of course, of longer duration. I find that everyone in the district is keen on what we are doing. It should be a big draw for Windermere. Everybody who has been up has spoken well of the experience. Before this operation was fully underway, the company was approached by the publishers of the Daily Daily News with the idea of having a Manchester edition flown to the Isle of Man thereby avoiding the sea crossing and beating their competitors by up to eight hours. As a boy, Pixton had spent 14 consecutive holidays at Port Erin with his parents and he enthusiastically took up the challenge. An Avro seaplane was already making regular flights between Blackpool and Lake Windermere. After completing its early morning run, it would take off from the lake and fly direct to Douglas, landing in the bay between 7 and 8 a.m. and returning at noon. At 5.30am on Monday the 4th of August, four bundles of newspapers weighing 100 weight arrived at Windermere Railway Station and were taken to Cockshock Point and loaded into H2581's rear cockpit. Despite poor visibility, wind and rain, Pixton took off at 6.50am, flew south under the low cloud base, followed the River Leven and exited over Morecambe Bay. After passing over Cavendish Dock, he ascended to 2,000 feet and set course for the island alighting in Douglas Bay just after 8am. At a civic reception, he presented His Worship the Mayor with a copy of the first seaplane edition of the newspaper. The first copy was dispatched to His Excellency the Lieutenant Governor, Major General Sir William Fry, who later donated it to the local museum. It was subsequently lost. (laughs) At 4pm, Pixton taxied the Avro from the beach into a 30 mile an hour wind and driving rain. After a run of about 300 yards, at times engulfed in spray, the biplane took off and was lost to view. Pixton flew just above the waves until he reached the mainland, where he ascended cautiously to avoid factory chimneys at Barrow. He alighted at Windermere just over an hour after leaving Douglas. The next day he arrived at the Isle of Man at 7.20am in somewhat better weather to be welcomed by a large crowd who eagerly snapped up all copies of the seaplane edition. He departed at 10.45. On the following day, the 6th, Pixton attempted to carry more copies to meet demand, but was unable to get off and had to return to Cockshock Point to reduce his load and replace a broken flying wire. By the time he took off, more than 3,000 people were anxiously awaiting the overdue delivery at Douglas. Concerned that Pixton might have ditched, Lieutenant Moxon of Avro was about to take off from the beach at 10am when Pixton's aircraft appeared. On Thursday the 7th, Pixton had his best crossing so far, arriving at Douglas at 8am. When he began his return journey at 3pm, he was carrying as a passenger Mr T Longworth, the managing publisher of the Northern Edition of the Daily News, who had paid his 10 guineas to become the first fair-paying passenger to fly from, or to, the Isle of Man. Fortunately, we have Mr Longworth's own account of the event, entitled Douglas to Windermere, first civilian to cross in a seaplane. It was published in the September 1919 issue of the Joystick, the official house organ of A.V. Rowe & Co. Limited. Here it is for the first time in 95 years. 
When I told Captain Pixton that I wanted to be the first civilian to fly in a seaplane from the Isle of Man across the Irish Sea, he promptly proceeded to test my nerve. What are you going to do if you come down in mid-ocean? Can you swim? he inquired. I said I couldn't, and as equally promptly asked, asked whether he could. When the yes came, I cheered him up by pointing out that he'd have a little matter of 30 miles to go, and if he couldn't swim 30 miles, well, he'd be no better off than I should be. <laughs> well, he replied, you'll get a bit of a shaking when we tumble into the land breezes on the other side. I thought of the wonderful way in which the seaplane had brought its cargoes of daily news across the water all that week. Twice they had arrived as the clock struck eight, and another morning they had come even before time. So I plunged and told the captain he could say what he liked, but he couldn't get the wind up me. That afternoon, a glorious day it was too, we started. I couldn't get goggles or a helmet, so I put my cap on back to front and sported a pair of self-tinted glasses. That was all Douglas could provide. We taxied out for a mile or so and then turned round to rise with the wind, going away to a chorus of goodbyes, long and short, from the crowds, out on the shore and the boats. Now, I want to emphasise two remarkable facts. One was this. We did not lose sight of the island for nearly 50 miles, and yet I could not spot land on this side less than 10 miles away. There was something ahead, but whether it was land or clouds, the unpractised eye could not be sure. The other fact is this. It shows how familiar objects seem to lose their identity when seen at a height. Directly we started, I could see the bottom of the sea quite distinctly. And as we came along, I made sure I could see a shoal of fish. Mackerel, I told myself, prompted perhaps by the knowledge that the fish is plentiful around the island. Later on came a white object, which I was equally positive were boulders at the bottom of the ocean. Proud of this power of observation, I asked Captain Pixton when we landed whether he had seen the shoal and boulders. Fish and boulders, he replied with a laugh. Those were waves you saw. Crossing the sea was the most delightful sensation one can possibly imagine. We had come across between the clouds at a height of some 8,000 feet and the trip of 60 miles had taken us little more than half an hour. But a mile from the shore we struck the land breeze with such force that our machine seemed absolutely held up it must have taken us a quarter of an hour to force away through the last mile, and then we had to drop some 2,000 feet before we could make headway. It took us 40 minutes to make the run over Ulverston to Windermere, where we could see plainly both Coniston and Lake Windermere in one picture. We dropped onto the lake just an hour and ten minutes after leaving Douglas. Crossing over by boat in the morning had taken five and a half hours. And if we had come back by boat and rail, we should have cut into the best part of nine hours. But now I was able to transact business at Windermere, go on by train to Morecambe and do more business, and to reach Blackpool by motor with an hour to spare before midnight. I cannot speak too highly of the courtesy and skill of Captain Pixton. He had flown across the ocean just as though he had signposts all the way and had not swerved a quarter of a mile out of his course. It was simply glorious. I don't want to see a train again when I can take the AV road. He did lots more newspaper deliveries. I won't go into details on those. Um, but eventually, after early in October, the Avro Transport Company's Windermere operations ceased. And um, although it was suggested that Pixon would remain there to give flying tuition, it seems that no further flying took place. 
As his son was at a Keswick boarding school, Pixton and his wife remained in the area. Having failed to sublet part of the Cockshock Point hangar, he started a garage business on the premises, assisted by his former Avro mechanic. He sold cars, motorcycles and petrol, and also ran a taxi service based at Windermere Station. In the summer months, he ran Lakeland tours. When his wife died in 1928, he lent a hand to various private flying clubs in Britain, Woodford, Hooton and Halden. He then joined the Lancashire Aero Club as a ground engineer and later served in similar positions at the Liverpool and Tainmouth Flying Clubs. Pixton remarried in 1931 and in 1932 he retired to the Isle of Man where he found only one aeroplane, Avro Sports Avian GABSS, which was kept at Ronaldsway Estate and belonged to William Cunningham, the founder of Cunningham's Holiday Camp. With Kenneth Twemlow of the Lancashire Aero Club, he helped to arrange the island's first aviation meeting on 18th of June 1932, establishing Ronaldsway as an acceptable airfield. He also served as a judge for the first air races on the island and became vice president and founder member of the Royal Air Force Association's Isle of Man branch. Upon the outbreak of the Second World War, Pixton rejoined the AID, inspecting aeroplanes. Aged 60 at the war's end, he lived to see man reach the moon. He died at Ramsey on the 7th of February 1972, aged 87, and at his request was buried among the RAF graves in Jerby Cemetery on the Isle of Man. It is fitting that Pixton should have the last word. In 1954, he wrote of the early pioneers at Brooklands, These pioneers were the finest fellows it has ever been my good fortune to meet. It was an honour and a privilege to be in any way connected with them. Quiet, unassuming, kind-hearted, they flew for the sheer love of flying, with very little reward, never thinking that they were doing anything out of the ordinary. They certainly never thought that they were important enough to write up their life stories for the papers, as appears to be the fashion today. And yet, these were the men who not only handed on the know-how to all future generations of pilots, but also the know-why. Howard Pixton himself was just such a man. Thank you. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.